please be seated. As you take your seat, you can open your copy of the Word of God with me to Luke's Gospel, chapter 17. We're going to look at Luke 17, verses 11 through 19 this morning. A great and familiar story about the need to give thanks. Give thanks to God. In one of the most remarkable healings in the ministry of our Lord Jesus, the healing of the ten lepers. I want you to notice four things in this simple passage this morning. First, we have the context. Luke does that for us in verses 11 through 13. And then we have the cleansing by the Lord Jesus in verse 14. Thirdly, we have a conversion. And then finally, a contrast. The Lord Jesus contrasts the Samaritan man who was healed with all the other nine, apparently Jews, who were also healed in this passage. So along with an outline of the message, join me as we seek God's face in prayer and ask his Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts this morning of eternal things through the foolishness of the message preached. Let's pray. Lord, I ask now that you would move by your Spirit in this place Move on our hearts, Lord. I pray that you would bring clear spiritual understanding to every one of us. And that through the power of your word, you would speak to our hearts. Lord, convict us, encourage us, instruct us. Most of all, love us through your word preached this morning. And we'll give you all the praise and glory and honor for all that you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Brian read the passage for us this morning, but I want you to notice, first of all, the context of this event, the context in verses 11 through 13. The setting of this story is Jesus' journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, and his route included a narrow strip or a border between Samaria and Galilee. And apparently this border served as a reservation for both provinces that is to say, an asylum for undesirables and others cut off from communities where they once lived. One might say this was a great place for someone who was suffering from leprosy because those in Galilee didn't want them any more than those in Samaria. And so they kind of forced them out of their respective areas and so they ended up on a border or a reservation because they had to stay away from everyone else little background on leprosy. The Hebrew word describes a variety of infectious skin diseases in the Old Testament. In Leviticus 13 and 14, it points to specific instructions dealing with infectious skin diseases and how priests, who were basically the local health inspectors of the day, were to deal with it. In Leviticus 13, outlines detection and diagnosis and treatment procedures for infectious skin diseases. And Leviticus 14 outlines the process of cleansing, sacrifices, and offerings were to be presented after the healing. And then the most important part, the priest had to inspect the person and declare them unclean. After that, there would be about an eight-day period of celebration, after which time the individual could re-enter the community and the temple. So it was very important to go through those steps. 
We learn later in verse 16 that this band of lepers was a mixed group. It had a Samaritan, at least one. And Jews hated Samaritans and vice versa. But they were often forced to live together when leprosy struck. Leprosy was an equal opportunity disease. It made no distinction between male or female, young or old, rich or poor, Jew or Gentile, slave or free. And thus, it has a tendency to bring together those who suffer from it. We see a lot of cases of uh, leprosy in the Bible. Miriam in Numbers chapter 12, King Azariah in 2 Kings 15, and King Uzziah, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. The misery of this situation is highlighted in Scripture. Listen to the words of Numbers 13, verses 45 and 46. Quote, The person with such an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkempt, cover the lower part of his face, and cry out, Unclean! Unclean! As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. And so you see, if you suffered from leprosy, there was shame, there was disgrace, there was misunderstanding, there was isolation from the community, and by default, from God himself. You could not participate in the temple, in the worship of Jehovah. Well, that is the context of our situation. And these men approached Jesus with a very, very critical need. Master, please help us. Have mercy on us. Well, notice the cleansing in verse 14. The text says, When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they were going, they were cleansed. In response to their plea, Jesus says, Go and show yourself to the priest. It's interesting, in Luke chapter 5, Jesus healed a man with leprosy by touching him. And making a pronouncement. In Luke 5, he said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I'm willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Nevertheless, here in Luke 17, Jesus offers no touch and no pronouncement. This is one of the greatest miracles in the Bible. It's a mass miracle, if you will. But it is also one of the most impersonal and indirect healing or miracles that Jesus performed. Why? Well, scholars speculate perhaps it was to make it easier on them whenever they went to meet with the priests. You know, the religious leaders hated Jesus. And so perhaps Jesus backed away and just said, like any normal Jew would say, go show yourself to the priests so it would make it easier on them to have to explain. I mean, if ten lepers show up uh, to the priest's office and they're all cleansed, naturally the priest would want to know what happened. And that would only create more difficulty prematurely for uh, the Lord Jesus. Once again, all we can do is speculate. Jesus made it possible for these men to completely leave him out of the account, an explanation for their healing. Or maybe Jesus had a certain reason why he healed these men this way. Perhaps to see how the group would respond to their miracle. In other words, the way that Jesus oddly healed these men set the stage for what's going to happen as this passage unfolds. And it would be just like the sovereign Lord, the Lord Jesus, to set things up in order to fulfill his intentions in this particular event for sacred scripture. Well, thirdly, I want you to notice the conversion. The conversion. 
And we see that in verses 15 and 16, and also verse 19, as Jesus interacts with this Samaritan man. Here we learn that while there were ten, they were on their way to see the priest, one of them turned back, glorifying God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving thanks to Jesus. And Luke is very careful to point out, and this man was a Samaritan. As I've already mentioned, Jews and Samaritans had nothing to do with each other. Samaritans were considered a polluted people. They were the product of syncretism between Jews and Gentiles during the Babylonian captivity. So this man was healed, and I have to ask the question, and I want you to ask the question with me this morning. What prompts this man out of ten, this one man out of ten, to come back, fall down, and glorify God by offering overwhelming thanks to Jesus. I believe the man stopped to consider all that happened to him that day. Now true, Jesus said, go and show yourself to the priests. And he probably said the plural, priests, because these guys would go their separate ways. You can't see a Samaritan going to an Orthodox Jewish priest. The man probably wouldn't have anything to do with him. So he'd have to go back to Samaria, perhaps, to find a priest he could meet with to fulfill the obligation. But this one man stopped. In his head, the ceremonial clean bill of health could wait. His spiritual obligation overrode his ceremonial need. This man was in the worst possible position. Like the other lepers, he was alienated from society because of his leprosy. But unlike the others, he was basically alienated from God, the God of Israel, because if he was a Samaritan. Assuming the other nine lepers were all thoroughbred Jews, this man knew that Jesus could have healed the nine and left him out. I think all of these realities rushed over this man like a fresh, refreshing rain. But you see, Jesus' actions communicated that God had come close and that the Lord was concerned not only for this man's physical healing, but for his spiritual healing, the healing in the soul. And that's our greatest need, ladies and gentlemen. And that Jesus would bypass every barrier. He would cut through every barrier as if there were walls of bronze. He would break through them in order to get to human need. I can't help but think of the story of the woman at the well. She was a woman, she was a Samaritan, and she was immoral. And Jesus broke through every man-made barrier to reach and save an immoral Samaritan woman. And so also this man realized all the barriers Jesus broke through to save him. And you notice what he does in verses 15 and 16. This man offered worship and thanks to Jesus. When he saw he was healed, he turned back. He glorified God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at the feet of Jesus. What a beautiful picture. See, the man exercised saving faith in Jesus, according to verse 19. If we skip down there, we see what Jesus said. Jesus said to him, stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. He didn't say that to the others. They didn't come back. But the man exercised faith in Jesus. In fact, 
literally in the Greek New Testament, when he says your faith has made you well, it's literally saved you. Your faith has saved you. The greatest miracle that happened that day in this man's life was not physical healing. It was his spiritual healing. And the Lord Jesus extended grace and kindness in this man's life. And the man's physical healing led to a spiritual conversion. He acknowledged Jesus as the Messiah. The Samaritans were very well versed that Messiah was coming. Just as Orthodox Jews were. And I believe this man paused and stopped in order to come back and to give thanks to God and praise to God by worshiping the Lord Jesus as he fell at his feet. He was grateful because he realized the depth of his need, not just physical healing, but restoration with God. And he wanted that so badly. And so he came and he worshiped, and the Lord Jesus says, Your faith has saved you. And then he went on his way, we believe, to see the priests. That's the conversion. Now, fourthly and finally, I want you to notice the contrast. And we see it in three questions that Jesus asked in verses 17 and 18. Jesus healed all ten men. He told them to go to the priests. As they went on their way, they all received healing. And now that they were clean, nothing would have prevented them from returning to Jesus for a few moments in order to give thanks to him for their healing. And so Jesus offers three rapid-fire questions as he draws a contrast between the Samaritan and the others. His questions point to the obvious. How is it possible to receive such blessing and yet not acknowledge the source? And furthermore, giving praise and thanks should come naturally from a Jew. So how is it that only this single foreigner returns to do so? See, Jesus shows the same attitude. He looks at a Samaritan as if they were a Gentile. But he's doing this by way of a contrast. You know, the Bible says the first shall be last and the last shall be first. Well, this is a vivid picture of that. These Jews should be the first to worship. They should be the first, according to the covenants, to bow before the Lord Jesus as the Messiah, but they don't do it. Instead, this foreigner, this one who is cut off from Israelite worship in the purest sense, he's the one that comes. You know, this uh, passage re reveals the deadly problem of ingratitude. I wonder if we think about that every time we confess our sins. I don't know about you, I think about a lot of other sins that I need to confess. I rarely think about ingratitude. We all like to think that we're naturally thankful people. That we give thanks to God on a regular basis. After all, we pray before we eat. <laughs> There's something about this passage that just brings up a serious problem of ingratitude. The inability to give thanks and praise to God is not merely rude, it is symptomatic of a much greater problem. And that is, you can have a change in your circumstances, but no change of heart. The Lord may work in your life and do things for you, and that's all well and good, but if that doesn't lead to repentance, as the kindness of God leads to repentance, according to Romans 2, if that doesn't lead to 
uh, a joy inexpressible and full of glory, as First Peter says, then something is wrong. Nine of these men came to Jesus, acknowledged who he was and what he could do for them, and they were on their way back to their lives and routine after their encounter with Jesus, but without faith and an intimate relationship with God. This kind of attitude is the antithesis of what Scripture teaches. I love Psalm 73. Probably one of my favorite verses in the Bible, verses 25 and 26, as the psalmist looks around himself and he sees how the wicked get along, and they're okay, they're doing all right. But he has difficulties and problems until he steps into the temple and he worships. And the last couple of verses of that psalm say this, Whom have I in heaven but thee? And beside thee I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Did you hear that? Besides thee I desire nothing on earth. It's hyperbole. But the essence of it is, more than anything else in this life, I have a hunger and a thirst and a yearning for the very presence of God. And there is no blessing, no gift, no favor, no kindness that God could show me that's going to satisfy my hungry heart. I've got to have His presence. You see, the tragedy of this passage is many people are content to stand at a distance from the Lord Jesus. They know all about Him. They've read the Bible. They may have grown up in an evangelical context. But they stand at a distance from Jesus while asking Him for things to make life on earth bearable or more enjoyable. But Jesus Christ wants our hearts. He wants us to be united to Him in a personal relationship. And by failing to glorify God and returning to thank Jesus, these other nine miss the greatest possible moment of their existence. That's why we read the story of Naaman the Syrian. What a beautiful picture. An Old Testament picture of this situation here. He was a Syrian. He wasn't a thoroughbred Jew. But he had leprosy, and he came to know the living God, Jehovah, through his healing by the prophet Elisha. Sadly, Elisha's servant Gehazi, which we did not read in the rest of the passage in 2 Kings 5, he was greedy. He lied, he took gifts from Elijah that were never intended to be given, and he gave them. And he got gifts from Naaman, and oddly enough, he in the end was struck with leprosy while Naaman was healed. Jesus' final question, was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? Only the foreigner, the Samaritan, gave praise to God. The other nine were so earthbound that they missed the spiritual dimension altogether. You see, pausing to give glory to God would not preclude their trip to see the priests. It was something very small that could be done very quickly. But the fact that they didn't do it demonstrates the state of the heart. The contrast between the action of the nine and the one Samaritan reveals a deeper need, a deeper longing, a stronger thirst, and subsequently a much greater blessing and deliverance. You see, the problem with the nine is they're content. 
They got their happy meal and they were on their way. <laughs> but for this Samaritan, it wasn't enough. When I think about this Samaritan, I think about Psalm 42.1, as the deer pants for water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? For Psalm 63.1, O God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh yearns for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Folks, our greatest need is not for healing from a disease or for a material matter to be resolved or a family matter. Our greatest need is for a relationship, a dynamic, life-changing, daily relationship with the living God. And the only way that's possible is to bow the knee and to say the Lord Jesus, I am a sinner and I need you. Your atoning work on the cross pays for all of my sins. You are God incarnate. And I want to devote my life to you and developing this wonderful relationship with you. I'm not content with good things that you might give me. I want the giver over the gift. I want the giver more than the gift. Can you say that this morning? Because you see, this man demonstrated the very thing the Lord Jesus expected all of them to do was to come running back and be united to Jesus in a close, intimate, personal relationship. And what that led to is freedom. Go your way. Your faith has saved you. How about in your life this morning? Where do you fit in in this passage? Are you one who can stand at a distance from Jesus? You know, we do that whenever we stop praying. We do that when we wake up in the morning and uh, our crowded calendar takes over and we don't take the time to pray and read God's word. We don't take the time to have the mind of Christ. We know the Lord Jesus. We may be able to quote scripture, but we're standing at a distance. And the living God says that's not enough. And you want too little. You're not hungry enough. It's like the kid in the projects. You know, he's playing in a mud puddle. And you go by and you say, wouldn't you like to go to the ocean? The kid's never been to the ocean. He's, all he's used to is his mud puddle. So he never goes to the ocean because of what he's used to. That's the way a lot of Christians are, I think. Sometimes we can stand at a distance from the Lord Jesus, and we don't have that passionate desire to be close to him, to know him, to want the giver more than the gift. David said in Psalm 103, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. God's word makes it clear, I'd rather you be hot or cold, but not lukewarm. When it comes to your passion for me and your devotion, love me more than father, mother, sister, brother. Jesus said in another place, This man was hungry for God, and he received healing. But most importantly, healing of the soul beyond healing of the body. Have you received that healing? Have you bowed the knee and stood before the Lord Jesus and saying, Lord, save me from my sin. I want an intimate relationship with you because to know you is to know the living triune 
God. And I put my faith in you. If you haven't done that, I challenge you to do that today. And all the rest of us, if we know the Lord Jesus, let's not stand at a distance. Let's get close. Close as white on rice every day. Walking with him, loving him, following him. Seeking his face daily. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for this marvelous story. Father, we thank you there was one out of the nine who returned to give thanks, to demonstrate a changed heart and a changed life. Lord, help us not to be like the other nine, coming to you as if you were some sort of a vending machine and getting what we want or what we ask for, but then going away and not devoting ourselves to a passionate relationship with you that we might know the living God. Lord Jesus, touch our hearts. If we're standing at a distance, then draw us in and give us a compulsion to know you better, more intimately. And Lord, if there's one or two here that have never known what it is to have sins forgiven, what it is to have a relationship with the living God, what it is to have a cleansed conscience, what it is to have spiritual peace, I pray you would touch their hearts today and draw them to yourself and save them for Jesus' sake. Lord, do all these things and more. We'll give you the praise and glory for what you will do. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.